millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History. Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Hart, and uh, with me at my bijou re- residence is uh, Gary Bain, who looks particularly fetching in a large purple tent. As opposed to you dressed up as a, a, an admiral of the fleet. Yeah, well, I do like this. Is a, a, you've led us on to it. This is... A, Episode 5 in our epic series on the Battle of Jotland. And this one is called Disaster and Destroyers. Bit of alliteration there, Gary. You think of this one, did you? No, not at all. And if I knew what that meant, I would lay claim to it. (laughs) So where are we, Gary? Just give us a quick outline, because I know you've got a complete grip on the battle. Well, we left the two battlecruiser fleets on the run to the south. Which way were they heading then? South. At 1617, the range was closing rapidly. (gasps) I think I should interrupt you now. This was the crisis of the battle. Any listeners we've still got might be interested to know that the Queen Mary was engaged in an evenly balanced contest with the Sadlitz until an unfortunate set of circumstances severely disadvantaged the Queen Mary. Yeah, uh, well, uh, the, 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 what happened was we've discussed how the, the line had been badly damaged. Remember, it had its turret, one of its turrets blown up and it had flooded the magazine and managed to survive. But it weaved to t- starboard. We had temporarily dropped out of the British line. Now, Von Hayes aboard the Durfling couldn't see what was happening. He's a gunnery officer. And in consequence, he, 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 um, he meant to engage the second battlecruiser he could see in the British line. But what he actually did was switch his fire from the Princess Royal to the Queen Mary. Again, this is about 16, so quarter, back, quarter past, 17 minutes past four. And the point about this is, what does that mean? So it's an evenly balanced contest between the Sadlitz and the Queen Mary. What is it now? Unevenly balanced. Yeah, because there's two of them now bloody firing, uh, the, the Queen Mary. There are, but hampered by smoke for a while, Von Hayes handed over direct control to his spotting officer in the foretop. Now, and we've referred to these previously, his pre-battle fantasies <laughs> were becoming a reality. 
as the Leviathans exchanged mighty blows. Although it was hardly a fair fight at two to one, as you've referenced, with both the Seidlitz and Durflinger firing hard at the Queen Mary, the barrage of accurate shells soon began to tell. And this is Petty Officer Gunner's mate, uh, that's his chum, Ernest Francis. (laughs) Don't confuse the listener. Of HMS Queen Mary. There was a heavy blow, struck, I should imagine, in the after four-inch battery, and a lot of dust and pieces flying around on top of the ex-turret. My attention was call, call, called by the turret trainer, A.B. Long, who re- that's a lovely name, hey, A.B. Long. <laughs> his name wasn't Ian. <laughs> yes, who reported the flunk glass of his periscope blocked up. This was not very important because we were in director training mode, but someone in the rear heard him report his glass foul and without orders dashed on top and cleared it. He must have been smashed as he did it, for he fell in front of the periscope, groaning, and then apparently fell off the turret. I wish I knew his name, poor chap, but it's no use guessing. (laughs) There's another poor chap dead. As the next German salvos crashed home, the situation spun out of control. One shell detonated a forward magazine of either A or B turrets. That's the two turrets, front turrets, yeah. And once more, you're going to tell us what Petty Officer Gunner's mate Ernest Francis says. Then came the big explosion, which shook us a bit, and on looking at the pressure gauge, I saw the pressure had failed. Immediately after that came what I term the... Big smash. And I was dangling in the air on a bowline, which saved me from being thrown onto the floor of the turret. These bowlines were an idea I brought into my turret, and each man in the gunhouse was supplied with one. As far as I noticed, the men who had had them were not injured in the big smash. Number two and number three gun crew of the left gun slipped down under the gun, and the gun appeared to me to have fallen through its trunnions and smashed up these two numbers. So they were crushed by the gun. Wow, terrible. Now, for a moment, there was an illusion of silence, probably caused by a mixture of temporary deafness and mind-numbing shock. And Petty Officer Gunner's mate, Ernest Francis, goes on. Everything in the ship went as quiet as a church. The floor of the turret was bulged up and the guns were absolutely useless. I must mention here that there was not a sign of excitement. One man turned to me and said, What do you think's happened? I said, Steady, everyone. I will speak to Mr. Hewitt. That's the officer. I went to the back of the cabinet. Oh, it's a good idea to ask the officers, isn't it, Gary? They, they'll know. I went to the back of the cabinet and, and said, What do you think's happened, sir? He said, God only knows. <laughs> well, sir, I said, it's no use keeping them all down here. Why not send them up round the four-inch guns and give them a chance to fight it out? Now, Francis, he, he's ordered to check on the state of the four-inch battery, but he didn't get far before he realised that game was up. And he goes on to say this, doesn't he, Gary? I put my head through the hole in the roof of the terror, and I nearly fell through again. The after four-inch battery was smashed right out of all recognition. And then I noticed that the ship had an awful list to port. Left-hand sidey. I dropped back inside and told Lieutenant Newer the state of affairs. He said, Francis... We can do no more than give them a chance. Clear the turret. Clear the turret, I called, and out they went. Wow. 
Now, the scramble to escape from deep inside the turrets was desperate, but some men had personal courage that led them far beyond the call of duty. They could not bring themselves to escape until all their men were accounted for. And once more, you're going to tell us what Ernest Francis says. I'm doing a lot of work. You're doing not, all the work. Not as much work as these lads did in this turret, though. Uh, the petty officer, he says, petty officer stairs was the last I saw coming up from the working chamber. That's the working chamber and the magazines are beneath the turret. And he told me it was no use as the water was right up the trunk leading from the shell room. So the bottom of the ship must have been out of her. Then I said, why don't you come up? He simply said, there was no order to leave the turret. I went through the cabinet and out through the top. Lieutenant Ewart was following me. Suddenly he stopped and went back into the turret. I believe he went back because he thought there was someone left inside. Oh, brave man, brave man. By this time, the ship was in its death throes. The deck killed over to port at an angle of more than 45 degrees. Now, Gary, that, you can think of what 45 degrees is. Now, that doesn't seem that steep until you think about what it means. And uh, Fra Ernest Francis says this. The ship had an awful list to port by this time, so much so that men getting off the ladder went sliding down to port. I got onto the bottom rung of the ladder and could not, by my own efforts, reach the stanchions lying on the deck from the ship's side, starboard side. So he's trying to go up. Uh, I knew if I let go, I should go sliding down to Paul like some of the others must have done and probably get smashed up sliding down. Two of my turrets crew, seeing my difficulty, came to my assistance. These two men had no thought for their own safety. They saw I wanted assistance and that was good enough for them. They were both worth a VC twice over. Well, perhaps not, but brave men, we'd all agree on that, wouldn't no, we? No, no, that's yeah. Now, behind them, aboard the Tiger... Are you going to do some work? Able seaman Victor Haywood watched as Francis and the rest of the ex-turret men struggled onto the deck. And this is what Able seaman Victor Haywood aboard HMS Tiger said. One by one, men could be seen coming out of the after turret and climbing down to the exposed bilge keel and jumping into the water. Also, rolls and rolls of white paper came streaming out of her after hatch, situated on her quarter deck. These must have been spare rolls of dry as chart paper because her gunnery office was situated close to the after hatch. It went trailing away over the boiling sea like a shaking toilet roll. When quite a few men were already in the water, the second explosion occurred. Now, uh, I want to make a technical point here. If you're ever on a cross-channel ferry with, with me, Gary, and we see uh, <laughs> the bilge keel is exposed, it's not a good sign. You would probably need the toilet roll that was in the water. <laughs> anyway, now, inevitably, so some of the men hesitate before entering the war. Why would they enter? Well, why would they? Why would they enter? Why they, would they hesitate? Well, although they were all supposed to be able to swim, it's a fool who entrusts his life to waves of the North Sea unnecessarily. Now, as ever, some were convinced that their ship would yet survive, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And once more, you're going to be Ernest Francis aboard HMS Queen Mary. When I got to the ship's side, there seemed to be a fair crowd. And they didn't... This is the starboard side. He's got up, so it's right up high. Uh, and, uh, and they did not appear to be very anxious to take to the water. I called out to them, Come on, you chaps! Who's coming for a swim? Someone answered, She'll float for a long time yet. 
but something, I don't pretend to understand what it was, seemed to be urging me to get away. So I clambered up over the slimy bilge keel and fell off into the water, followed, I should think, by about five more men. Wow. Their last glimpse of the stricken giant that had been their home were through masses of billowing black smoke and falling debris. The final convulsions of the Queen Mary were visible right across the fleet as she disappeared in a final parax- paroxysm. Yeah, the, 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 the picture's famous of the blowing up, and it's like I a, think I've an, seen it, yeah. It's like an atomic explosion. It, it's it's a, the, the final explosions are absolutely cataclysmic. Uh, most of the men in the water, if they're still near the ship, were probably killed by the shockwaves. Um, and then, of course, there's a storm of what coming from the, fr- the the sky? Well, I think you're referring to the debris. Yeah, so there's every, every what goes up. Now, she had a company of 1,287 men, men. And how many were there that survived? There were just 20. I mean, again, so that's, uh, that's uh, over 1,200 men, well over 1,200 men killed in those few minutes. It's, it's dreadful. Now, uh, so there is, of course, the other perspective of this. And, and this is the thing about perspectives. Uh, what's the perspective from the Derflinger, where uh, we've got uh, Commander Jorg von Haas? Well, we're referring once more to his fantasies. It seems literally like a dream come true for him. And this is Commander George von Haas. Since 4.24pm, he's made this point before, there's a time difference. The Germans use a clock one hour ahead. Every one of our salvos had straddled the enemy. When the salvo fired at 4.26 and 10 seconds, heavy explosions had already begun in the Queen Mary. First of all, a vivid red flame shot up from her forepart. Then came an explosion, forward which was followed by a much heavier explosion amidships. Black debris of the ship flew into the air, and immediately afterwards, the whole ship blew up with a terrific explosion. A gigantic cloud of smoke rose. The masts collapsed inwards. The smoke cloud hid everything and rose higher and higher and higher. Finally, nothing but a thick black cloud of smoke remained where the ship had been. At its base, the smoke column only covered a small area, but it widened towards the summit and looked like a monstrous black pine. And and that's, we'll we'll put a picture up of that uh, if if we remember, uh, or perhaps other people will do it for us on the thread um, <laughs> when they realise we've forgotten. <laughs> this is often the case. Uh, now, uh, how how are the British doing then? How, how would you say they're doing? Well, overall, it's grim, isn't it? This latest loss was a truly stunning blow for Beatty. He'd entered into combat filled with confidence with a numerical superiority of six battle cruisers to the German four. Now, within 45 minutes, he'd lost two and his own flagship had been severely pounded. Hmm. Now, uh, one of them, the Indefatigable, it, it's, it, it, it was old. But when we say old, it wasn't that old, was it? Uh, it was just, it had just become a little bit, uh, well, obsolescent, I suppose. But it was still a modern ship. In, it, I mean, now a ship's modern for 40 years. Uh, but the Queen Mary, there's no question, that was the pride of the battlecruiser fleet, wasn't it? When it had been finished, you can you remember? Uh, completely. 1913, she was one of the most modern type of battlecruiser and as such was meant to be superior to any German equivalent. Now, uh, the, the, the Beatty and the, uh, the, the flag captain, uh, Ch- Chatfield, uh, Alfred Chatfield, they stood on the bridge of the, the line. Um, and, and Beatty sums it up with a pithy phrase, which is, uh, secured a place in popular history and is therefore equally meritorious as you'd expect. Well, what was it? Tell us what flag captain Alfred Chatfield says. 
I was standing beside Sir David Beatty and we both turned round in time to see the unpleasant spectacle. The thought of my friends in her flashed through my mind. I thought also how lucky we had evidently been in the lion. Beatty turned to me and said, There seems to be something wrong with our bloody ships today. A remark that needed neither comment nor answer. There yeah. was something wrong. He's got to say, he's put his finger on something there, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the remark was so simple, and it was later the subject of a protracted historical argument, but it's of little significance. In itself, not really. Um, so, Beattie, he's a brave man. He can be seen as an, it can be seen as an inspirational leader. Um, he, but... Um, for him, it must have been strange. He'd been in action with against the same German battle cruisers at Dogger Bank, and yeah, there'd been frustrated command and control problems, but there hadn't been anything like this, had there? Um, and and uh, the line had been damaged at Dogger Bank as well, but there was nothing like what was happening at Jutland, was there? No, but it could have been worse, a lot worse. At sixteen twenty-eight, the wreck of Q turret smouldering quiescently since the hit at 1600 suddenly blazed up with a renewed and deadly vigour. Private Harry Willows, who had helped close the magazine door, was fortunate to escape once again. And he says this, The handling crew had gone up the iron ladder to the switchboard flat, which is immediately above. Being a rather small place, was it was rather crowded. From this flat, there is another iron ladder which leads to the mess deck. About then, the chief gunner came along to see everything was in order. Finding the turret was out of action, he ordered several of us to put fires, put out fires on the mess deck. Just as he and I got clear, the ignition of the cordite occurred, and the blast pushed us along. The space of about ten minutes had elapsed between the projectile exploding and the ignition of the cordite, which happened to, which happened to be in the cages, the hoppers, and possibly a charge in the handling room. Broken quarter charges that had got damaged while handling. Doubtless some burning clothing fell from one of the ramming numbers into the open cage and caught the cordite alight. Owing to the fact that the top of the turret was partially blown off, there was no explosion, but the flames travelled right through the turret and the adjacent compartment. So basically it's just the shell had hit, it had done its damage, and then something triggered a fire in the, the in, in any loose cordite that was lying around. But thank goodness it wasn't compressed, so it didn't explode, yeah. As the charges in the hoist exploded, the flames swept through Q turret, charring battered steel and consuming human flesh in the inferno. <laughs> the magazine bulkheads bent inwards under the pressure of the detonation, but they held and the ship survived, although the flames vented out as high as the masthead. Yeah. Wow. Now, yeah. only a matter of moments had stopped the lion sharing the same grim fate as the indefatigable and Queen Mary. Now, we've got to have a, a chat about what made these British battlecruisers so vulnerable to flash fires and magazine explosions when, when a turret was, turret was penetrated. Um, there are some, there's some things that people have raised, and, and we're not pretending to be experts, are we? I, I used to be, I suppose, but I don't think I ever really was. Uh, what's the first point you'd make from your studies, Gary? Well, the, the British cordite charges were far more unstable than those used by the Germans, which tended to burn rather than explode with such devastating consequences. Now, secondly, the British, they haven't brought in any effective anti-flash precautions. Uh, that's because they hadn't had the, the sort of timely but horrible warning the Germans had 
when the Seidlitz nearly blew up at the Battle of Dogger Bank. We, we, we discussed that in the last podcast. Yeah, as a result, the Germans had adopted precautions that restricted the potential for disaster, although it should be emphasised that they were not actually flash tight. They're still not safe, but they're safer. Yeah. Now, um, uh, the British were, hadn't really realised, had they, the risks they were taking. Um, they, what, what had they not grasped? Well, just how easily a flash could be communicated from the turret down via the handling and working chambers to the magazines. Which means? Boom. Boom, diddy, boom. No, no jokes. Now, um, there's something else made things slightly worse, and that that was what? Well, Uh, we've referred to this before. The relentlessly competitive culture of the Royal Navy undoubtedly played its part in promoting these disasters. In peacetime, an officer's entire career could be determined by his ability to perform certain tasks faster and smarter than his contemporaries. Yeah, and, and, and gunnery competition, the, the competition was intense and, 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 and the people, well, cheated. Well, yeah, corners. you might you expect they cut corners to gain a second or two's advantage and that's endemic. And peacetime habits die hard and it was quite common for ammunition cases in some of the battle cruisers to be left open or stacked up ready for instant use. While uh, access, uh, access, you know, the ladders and portholes and very not portholes, but the the doors and the, the scuttles were left open between the gun house and the working chamber. That's dangerous when there's a flash. And many gunnery officers were obsessed with increasing the rate of fire and hitting the enemy rather than any worries as to the possible consequences in the event of they were hit, being hit themselves. And uh, who would pay their their price for this? Would well, you say the crews of the Indefatigable and the Queen Mary? And at this point, we'll take a short break. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. At 16.36, Beatty had little option but to order his remaining ships to turn away from the fire. Yeah, the the battle, but uh, something else is happening. Uh, and you you might remember that uh, BT had issued an order. Now that order had actually been issued um, uh, at sixteen oh nine for the thirteenth destroyer flotilla to attack the German battle cruisers. Uh, now this led to a well, it, a little battle on its own. Full enough, this little battle is probably bigger than most of the big battles in the Second World War because it is quite big. So what happens? Well, at 1615, Captain James Ferry, uh, the 13th Flotilla leader aboard the light cruiser Champion, issued his orders, and in response, Commander Barry Bingham aboard the Nesta moved across the Lion's Bows and led the line of destroyers off towards the German line. Now, this was disrupted. Uh, I, I, it seems a little controversial why it was... We don't need to dwell on it. But Nesta was followed closely by the Nomad and the Nicotar, and then some distance behind was the Petard. Now, the obdurate Nerissa and Turbulent uh, would act independently. They didn't form part of this line. They went forward, but they, 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 they didn't uh, go forward with uh, the Nesta. And uh, the, the Pelican and the Narbra are, are just... Uh, they just seem not to go. Yeah, see, it's, uh, it's, it's not really clear. It's wise. somewhat confusing, isn't it? Now, this is what Commander Barry Bingham. It's to me, it's a modern-sounding name. I can't put my finger on why. Uh, he's a, the commander of HMS Nestor, and he says this: "I immediately hoisted the signal for full speed and ordered the destroyers to form a single line astern of me. Then, shaping course a point and a half towards the enemy, we ran full speed at thirty-five knots for half an hour in order to reach an advantageous position on the enemy's bows, such as would enable me to launch the torpedo attack with the greatest possible prospect of success. On drawing out to this position, we observed the enemy's fifteen destroyers coming out with the object of making a similar torpedo attack on our battle cruisers. So it's a, they're going to have a separate battle of their own, aren't they? The German post was all but inevitable. Eleven destroyers of the 9th Flotilla, followed subsequently by four of the 2nd Flotilla and their flotilla leader, the light cruiser Regensburg, moved out to meet the British thrust, yeah. aiming to launch their own torpedo attack on the British battle cruisers. So they, they charge it. Da, 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 da. Charge! It's a bit like cavalry, isn't it? Um, um, and what else is uh, similar to cavalry? Well, the British destroyers lost all concept of lines or tight formation. Instead, they charged recklessly into the attack at speeds of over 30 knots. Yeah, and, and, and there's also some, some some other ships join in. Uh, so you get uh, Termagant from the 9th Flotilla goes whizzing off to join them, and also the Morsum and the Morris of 10th Flotilla. Now, the the range, okay, 30 knots. So both sides are going about 30 knots. That's... What does 30 and 30 mean, Gary? 60. Maths with Pete and Gary. And uh, that means the range closes very, very quickly. Um, And it's not like the the, the duel between the battle cruisers. This is going to be a close quarter fight and it's going to be at breathtaking speed, isn't it? Yes, and this is Sub-Lieutenant Harry Oram on board HMS Obdurate. By sheer coincidence, the hounds on both sides had been unleashed simultaneously to steam at full speed into a fierce melee between the lines. 
The opposing forces were evenly matched and their combat was spectacular, highly exciting and chaotic. 30 ships at 30 knots weaving about in a restricted area, striving to find a way through to a torpedo firing position and hotly engaged in frustrating enemy craft. The approaching German torpedo boats with gushing funnels, high bow waves and turns tucked down in foaming wakes look sinister Stearns, and menacing. I think that must be. Sorry, there's a missing letter there. Oh, Stearns, yes. I remember feeling that they were like a pack of wolves that must at all costs be killed. <laughs> now, um, so it begins, and we, we've been working on, on uh, our aviation history book recently. And what does this remind you of? That, that it, it, well, it's it, a bit like a mad dogfight, isn't it? They're swirling round and they're too fast for any single man to take in and control. Yeah, you've got individual captains of destroyers. They're reacting on the spur of the moment. Destroyers are going here, there and ever. The, the, the crews are responding instinctively to, to, to what's demanded of them as best they can. And again, you're going to say what Sub-Lieutenant Harry Oram on HMS Obdurate says. At the forecastle gun, we waited expectantly for the captain's order and, with a sense of relief, opened rapid fire at the leading ship in the advancing pack. In a matter of minutes, we were caught up in a maelstrom of whirling ships as we swerved and jockeyed for a breakthrough position. We were under hell most of the time, the ship heeling as she spun. Events moved far too quickly for stereotyped gun control procedure, and we let fire at anything hostile that came within our arc of fire. It became a personal affair, and I have a vivid recollection of the sweating trainer cursing as he strove to change his point of aim from ship to ship as I tried to seize fleeting opportunities. Quite apart from the difficulty in making split-second decisions on friend or foe, our legitimate enemies swept past at aggregate speeds of up to 60 knots, and there was scant time to make a wild guess at range and deflection and get the gun pointed and fired before the chance passed and we were frantically trying to focus on a new target. It was quite impossible to pick out one's own fall of shot in a sea pocked with shell splashes, nor was there time to correct the range had we been able to do so. We fired many rounds at more or less point-blank range, but I had no idea if any found their mark, though several bright flashes gave hope that we had inflicted punishment. In the heat of swift action, senses become keyed up by the high tempo and feeling for time is lost. I would have been at a loss to say if we had been engaged for minutes or hours. Crowding incidents made it seem an eternity, and yet the period of action passed in a flash. Now, if you to look at a, a sort of guesstimate of the the tracks of the destroyers and that action, it would look. I mean, I, I remember writing the book, and I remember saying it looked. It would look like a, a ball of string had been tangled up by a particularly particularly irresponsible pair of kittens, or, or even more kittens. Several kittens. The British had one great advantage in such an engagement. What was it? Their destroyers were rated as torpedo boat destroyers, while the German destroyers were simply torpedo boats. Is there a clue in the name there? Torpedo boat destroyers. Now, this reflected the fundamental differences in their core function, which we can probably summarise as follows. The German destroyers were intended to launch torpedo attacks and so reduce the margin of superiority of the British dreadnoughts. Ah, but the British destroyers, although armed with destroyer, with torpedoes, and, and uh, they would 
try and sink opposing heavy units. Their first duty was the protection of the Grand Fleet. So slightly different functions. However, the German battle cruisers soon began to make their presence That's felt. That's cheating. This is Lieutenant, this is a modern name, Hilary Owen of HMS Mawson of the 10th Flotilla. Then I saw a mini splash just abreast of where I was standing and I realised I was at last under fire. The German destroyers only had 12-pounders and we had 4-inch, that's 30-pounders again, semi-automatic. And I almost I almost felt sorry for the poor German destroyers. Just then, I heard a frightful howl overhead and a tight salvo of 5.9 or 4.7-inch shells landed 200 yards over. This was from the secondary armament of the German battlecruisers and was followed by many others. So they'd come within range. And by secondary armament, that means not the 11 or 12-inch guns. It means the, the well, as he says, the, the, the smaller bangy things in a line along the side. And it went a, a, a good way to redressing the British destroyer's superior firepower. Having entered the skirmish in a state of disorganisation, once the uh, German battlecruisers uh, came under heavy fire, there was no chance... Sorry, once the German battle cruisers gave heavy fire, there was no chance of the British destroyers subsequently forming any sort of cohesive to concentrate their firepower. Yeah, they, they, you can't go from being a, a tangled ball, yeah, you know, or here, there and everywhere to form a, a line to launch a proper attack, organised attack. Now, uh, uh, ships damage. Well, early on in the, in, 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 in the battle, the mini battle, the Nomad, HMS Nomad, was quickly disabled and it wallowed to an absolute stop. And this is what Lieutenant Commander Paul Whitfield of HMS Nomad said. Our misfortune lay in getting a shell from one of their light cruisers clean through a main steam pipe, killing instantly the engineering officer and, I think, a leading stoker. At the same time, from two boilers came the report that they could not get water. We then shut off burners from the upper deck engaging the enemy meanwhile. The ship finally stopped, though steam continued to pour from the engine room. Now, in this mad sort of melee, uh, it's difficult for the destroyer to see beyond their immediate foes. They, they, I mean, we've had that for Oram. It's just impossible. And they can't really raise their focus to target the German battlecruisers. Um, but the Petar did get one chance, it did, didn't it, to, 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 to use her torpedoes on a nearby pair of, well, German destroyers. And this is Lieutenant Commander Evelyn Thompson of HMS Petard. We opened fire on what seemed to be our opposite number at about 6,000 yards range and rapidly closed to about 3,000 yards. I cannot say I remember much about our shooting or about the German shooting, as I was fully occupied with handling the ship, but I remember our steaming light falling down with a crash from aloft when the halyards had been cut through by a shell. At this time, Mr Epworth, my torpedo gunner, fired a torpedo, which was set to run at six feet deep, high speed setting at a bunch of four German destroyers, which were close together, and the tube's crew state they shortly afterwards noticed a very large explosion in the after part of them, which I hope was caused by this torpedo. Well, it probably was. Uh, a torpedo struck directly amidships in the, the German destroyer, the V-27, and they reckon that was the, this one from the Petard. Uh, uh, so uh, the, it crippled the V-27, so did, did the... Did the petard leave her alone? No, she poured in a series of salvos from a four-inch gun. 
Now, the German destroyers were unable to press home their attack on the British battlecruisers or super dreadnoughts to an effective torpedo range. And although some were fired, they had no effect other than to cause Evan Thomas to turn his fifth battle squadron some two points away as a precautionary measure. Now, round about this time, the German destroyers of, of their ninth flotilla retire back to their line. Uh, they, they rescued their crews. Two of their ships were sinking, the V-27 and V-29. Um, now, this, uh, this get, this, what, what might this have given the British chance to do? So some of the German destroyers have gone. What can, the, what, what can our brave lads do? Well, with the Nomad stopped in a tracks by a direct hit in the engine room, the Nestor and Nikator turned to carry out a torpedo attack on the German battlecruisers. <gasps> That's the chance they've been waiting for. Yeah. It was at this point that the four more powerful G-class German destroyers of uh, Second Flotilla made their presence felt with powerful backup from the Regensburg. That's the light cruiser we mentioned, yeah. The Nesta missed her battlecruiser targets with her first two torpedoes and as Hipper turned away. But Captain Barry Bingham was a determined man. This is what he says. I found myself with the solitary Nicotor, a halt on the track of the fleeing destroyers and now rapidly approaching the head of the German battlecruiser line, who are not slow in giving us an extremely warm welcome from their secondary armament. At a distance of 3,000 to 4,000 yards, Anesta fired her t third torpedo and immediately afterwards turned away eight points to starboard in order to get clear of the danger zone and to regain the line of the British battlecruisers. Suddenly from behind the head of the enemy's line there came a German light cruiser who opened hot fire and straddled us. Wow. Now, the light cruiser Regensburg made her present felt amongst the other British destroyers and even roused a grudging admiration from her opponents. And this is Lieutenant Hilary Owen aboard HMS Mawson of the 10th Flotilla. He had done his homework in the tactical school of Wil Wilhelmshaven, had that captain, and he could not support his destroyers with their miserable pop guns better. He had a regrettable skill in concentrating his salvos on the turning point when our leader altered course. Twice when Nestor, who was still leading us on an opposite course to the German destroyers, altered course, this light cruiser sent salvo after salvo into the turning point. Twice Hodgson, that's the captain of the Mawson, altered course well inside, and each time a salvo landed where we would have been if we had not altered course. Well, despite the disparity in firepower, Owen decided to take the light cruiser on himself with a four-inch gun on the Mawson, and he goes on to say this. I observed that the German light cruiser seemed to have ceased fire and yet was within range. I decided on a private war with her. 7,000 yards, fire! A splash right in line with a mainmast. Perfect! Up 400, 7,400, fire! No sign, evidently over. We had got a straddle. Down 200, 7,200, three rounds rapid. I was just about to say fire when the voice of LHK Hamilton behind me. Cease fire. She's out of range. No, she is not. I've got a straddle. Well, don't waste ammunition. We may want it later on. I have regretted many things in my life, and foremost among them is the memory of the three rounds rapid, which we never fired. So a missed opportunity, he feels. The Nesta got her torpedo off, but was hit almost in the same instant. And this is Petty Officer George Bettsworth aboard HMS Nesta. As we turned, one of their light cruisers got a six inch right into our forward boiler room. This shell came right through, hit the whaler, through the steel deck, into the boiler room to the bottom of the ship and exploded. 
I was up to my neck in salt water, boiling water, all the lot. We couldn't do much about that. Norman Roberts, the engineer officer, he went down the engine room and found out then that they'd got a packet in the engine room, all put out, all the lot. Tanks and everything, hence the water coming through to us. I decided to shut that one off, so there we were stuck. The after-boiler room with one little single boiler. He struggled on as much as he could with that, but eventually Jerry stopped us all together and we were a sitting target. Now, Bingham, he's up he's up on deck and he realises, because he's come under Barry Bingham, he realises that the, the nesters, well, we'd have said buggered normally, wouldn't he? And he says this, Two boilers were put out of action by direct hits. From the bridge, I saw at once that something of the kind had happened. A huge cloud of steam was riding from the <coughs> rising from the boiler room, completely enshrouding the whole ship, and it was painfully apparent that our speed was dropping with every second. Now, if the speed drops, that means they're an easier target. But she's still not helpless, is she? No, and uh, Commander Barry Bingham goes on to say this. Although crippled, we had guns that were still intact, and a hostile destroyer swooping down on what she thought was easy prey was greeted with volleys of salvos from our invaluable semi-automatic guns. After such a warm reception, the German destroyer sheared off post-haste. The damaged Nomad was also not to be underestimated, despite the serious damage she had suffered in the flurry of action. Absolutely. The next two British destroyers to seize the moment and attack the German line were the Petard and Turbulent. And this is once more Lieutenant Commander Evelyn Thompson aboard HMS Petard. We fired another torpedo at about 9,000 yards range at the German battlecruiser line and then turned to starboard to a slightly converging but nearly parallel course to the German battlecruisers. We steamed ahead a little and when about four points on their bow, fired the remaining two torpedoes. By this time, the German destroyers seemed to have disappeared. Now, this is quite interesting. Um, um, the, 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 the rendezvous between Hipper and his battlecruisers and the main body of Scheer, Admiral Reinhard von Scheer's high seas fleet, uh, they're going to meet because Hipper's sailing straight towards them. They're leading the British into a trap. And... Um, what Hipper finds, he can turn away because he doesn't need to to face the increasingly concentrated fire coming from who, Gary? The 5th Battle Squadron. Because they're beginning to catch up. Uh, and uh, and he, he needs to avoid these bloody torpedoes, as far as he's concerned, launched by these destroyers. So he turns away three times after 1630. Uh, until until which way is he pointing? Uh, due east. Yeah, so he's so he's no longer he's sailing away from from Beatty. In effect, he's broken off that duel with the British battlecruisers, uh, mainly because he doesn't need to. The torpedoes from the gallant Nesta, Nicator, and Turbulent missed their target. Oh! But the Petard was credited with a success, as it's believed that it was her torpedo that ran a considerable distance to eventually strike home on the Saidlitz at 1657. The Saidlitz was known as Lucky. Lucky. Ship. <laughs> yeah. Lucky. Much akin to the war spot. <laughs> now, this is, uh, now, um, now, the Petard, she fired her torpedo, which we now know to be a success, um, and then she, she turns away, uh, and she passes the damaged, uh, Nestor. But the, the, both of these, the, the, they suddenly see the crews of the Nestor and the Petard. They, they see something else, some, something big, something noticeable, something 
ominous. What is it, Gary? You're going to be Lieutenant Commander Evelyn Thompson, and you're on the petard. She was steaming in the same direction, but at reduced speed. I eased down near her and steamed alongside her for a few moments. She'd obviously been hit, but there did not seem to be anything I could do for her then. About this time, I caught my first sight of the German battle fleet coming up, bearing about southeast from us, and I can remember a long line of grey ships. Dun, dun, dun! Now, every man in the Royal Navy is supposed to have a heartfelt uh, sort of wish, an aim, a desire, a passion to, to, uh, to, to, to meet the high seas fleet and it, their wish was about to be granted as Sheer and the high seas fleet into the battle. Um, but perhaps it? they didn't wish in the circumstances that they found themselves out fought in the battle cruiser duel. The four remaining British battle cruisers uh, and are still trailing four super dreadnoughts found themselves facing the combined might of the whole German high seas fleet. The first act was drawing to a close. And the main drama was about to begin. Oh, God, Gary, the excitement. We're still looking. We've got oh, loads of time, have we? Well, Hipper had performed his reconnaissance and entrapment role to perfection. He had. Throughout the early exchanges, he'd kept Sheer admirably, admirably, admirably well informed as to events and had succeeded in enticing a significant section of the Grand Fleet into the more of the entire High Seas Fleet, which is what they wanted to do. They want, And that walk might but to take out the rest of the battle crews and the chance of taking out the Super Dreadnoughts of the 5th Battle Squadron. What does it mean, Gary? Shear's plans were about to reach fruition. And we're going to leave it there. Is there another one? Yeah. Next week, I Oh, think. I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait either. What will happen? Will will the will Beatty and the Super Dreadnoughts be sunk? Oh. You'll have to tune in to find out. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?